This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. It may be only a slight exaggeration to say that one of David Dillon's career accomplishments was to put the words Dallas and architecture in the same sentence again. After his screed in 1980, entitled Why is Dallas Architecture So Bad, launched his career as an architecture critic, Dillon took to the pages of the Dallas Morning News to praise, lament, beg, scold, suggest, cajole, and, yes, influence how Dallas and its metropolitan region took shape throughout three revolutionary decades of development. To follow his career as a critic from the early 80s, when downtown was dormant and street life an afterthought, to his retirement, when a new mindset for urban planning had largely set in but still had far to go, is to listen to a larger story about how thinking about the built environment in North American cities has changed over the last generation the new questions that have been raised, and the old ones that persist. Some of Dylan's most memorable and enduring columns have just been published by University of Texas Press in a collection called The Open-Ended City, David Dillon on Texas Architecture. The book is edited and introduced by Catherine Holliday, a professor of architecture at the University of Texas at Arlington, where she is founding director of the David Dillon Center for Texas Architecture. I spoke with her about Dillon's work and enduring legacy. I'm joined now by Catherine Holliday, editor of The Open-Ended City, a book featuring the work of David Dillon, the architecture critic. Catherine, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Great. It's good to be here. You mentioned at the outset of this book that you never got the chance to meet David Dillon, uh, who passed away in 2015, I believe. What's it like to be the curator of his legacy, uh, given that you never got to meet him, and do you feel like you're getting to know him through this work? That's... Great question. And, and David actually passed away in 2010. Um, and I think there are a couple of ways that I've, I've thought about uh, working in his legacy without having known him. And the first story has to do with um, the fact that his widow, Sally Dillon, entrusted the University of Texas at Arlington with David's papers. Um, so in 2011, she donated his notebooks, his research materials, There's a, a ton of things that documented his work um, sound recordings, all, all kinds of things. Um, and so that was an opportunity to really kind of delve into his legacy um, and Sally's trust in, in the university and, and in me to try to explore what his work meant um, was one really significant part of, of the project. Um, the other way that I've, I've thought about it is that because I didn't know him, I actually think in some ways that's a real strength um, because I'm coming to the writing relatively fresh I don't really have a personal agenda of any kind. Um, and so that gives me a different kind of perspective than someone who is a dear friend. Um, having said that, 
and knowing that I was putting this collection together uh, for at least a part of the audience uh, who knew David pretty well, it was important to me to hear personal stories. Um, so I spent a lot of time talking to people who were very close friends of David's about what their favorite articles were or what it was like to work with him as a critic when you were an architect <laughs> on the receiving end of, of his opinions. Um, so that I could get a little bit of a better sense for a feel of what it was like to work with him as a, as a real person rather than someone represented through his writing. Um, I think ultimately that um, reading through someone's thousand articles for the newspaper is an incredible way to get to know how they think. Um, and that is, I think, the real benefit for me of having approached the book this way. And tell us a little bit more about the Dillon Center for Texas Architecture. Uh, what what does it do and, and what do you do in your role as director? The, the Dillon Center um, was established um, after Sally donated David's paper to the university and the fundamental mission of the Dillon Center is to connect the kind of conversations that we have at the university to the conversations that the public and architecture and design professions have um, out out in the world. Um, and so some of the long-term kind of painstaking research and storytelling that we do inside the academy connected to the issues that really matter to people who care about cities and urbanism, especially in Dallas and Fort Worth in North Texas. Um, some of the ways that we've approached that or through the creation of the Dillon Symposium, um, which has dealt with issues um, concerning historic preservation, issues um, concerning the building the just city was our theme one year. Um, we had another theme about the networked city and thinking about issues relative to sprawl um, and technology in cities. Um, we have a symposium coming up in about a month um, in partnership with BC Workshop in Dallas um, that deals with the storytelling and legacy and history of Freedman's Towns all across the Dallas and Fort Worth region. And so we really try to focus on bringing together students, academics, historic preservationists, architects, neighborhood activists, everyone who cares about the city um, to come into conversation together. All right, let's talk about this book, which I think illustrates that mission you just described. It's called The Open-Ended City. It's a collection of David Dillon's writings with your introduction and commentary and the foundational piece of the book, and apparently the foundational piece of Dillon's career as an architecture critic, appeared in D Magazine and was called Why is Dallas Architecture So Bad? That's truth in advertising in the headline right there. What, uh, <laughs> what was David Dillon's answer to that question? and what did he propose at the time uh, as a solution or solutions to the problem? So th this is such a great provocative headline, um, and it's a really good example of a headline that will really uh, go the mile. Uh, I think it's still the headline that he's probably the, the best known for. Um, and when he was talking about Dallas architecture being bad, he was talking about the architecture essentially of the, of the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, he wrote the article in 1980. And that was a period in Dallas when there was a huge amount of change um, in the downtown, a huge amount of planning um, that had gone into completely rebranding the city as a modern progressive city. Um, and one way of doing that was, was through building. Um, there had been a new city hall, a new convention center in the works, um, all kinds of, of demolition and, and reconstruction. And what he saw as a kind of common thread and all of that work was that the architecture was kind of terrible. Um, it was visually unappealing, and it also didn't really serve 
the city streets well. It didn't serve pedestrians. It didn't do anything to rebuild the kind of lost social connections that downtowns had. And he took developers to task in particular. Um, Dallas and a lot of Texas cities um, by the late 20th century were really not driven in their planning so much by public policy as they were by developers, um, real estate developers. And so the, his goal in writing this article was to take those developers to task, to encourage them to get, to get an education in architecture. Um, and he encouraged looking to cities that he thought were doing a better job. And he identified um, Houston, which is, I think, ironic given the rivalries between those two cities. Um, and he also identified Minneapolis um, as a place where there was new development going on that developers in Dallas could learn from and begin to think more about how the architecture could look better, but also how it could perform better in creating a better social environment for Dallasites. Yeah, the comparisons are especially interesting and instructive because part of my question about the piece, which the piece does uh, address, is these problems are true of architecture anywhere, at least in North America. What is a particular problem that Dallas poses uh, in facing these challenges? So I think Dallas in particular um, faces the problem of um, civic fragmentation. And and this is something that I think you can see um, in the book in the way that um, an architecture critic covering Dallas in the 80s and the 90s was actually covering a huge sprawling metropolitan area. Um, And so while a lot of cities have a very focused downtown where there's a clear center and everyone can agree on what the middle of town really is, Um, In Dallas, that's not the case. Um, That's partially because of the kind of pairing with Fort Worth. And so that there is this bi-nuclear urban form that's created. But it's also because there's lots and lots of incorporated suburbs surrounding the center of Dallas um, that create this kind of power struggle between downtown Dallas being the center and the Arts District of Dallas being the center versus a place like Grapevine or Plano or Grand Prairie or Arlington, or Fort Worth, um, really trying to make its own center to compete with Dallas. Um, And I think that that's a theme that kind of runs through the book as you see the huge kind of geographic range of of the writing that he covered um, from one side of the the metroplex um, to the other. And talking about the metropolis as a whole, what really comes through in this book is David Dillon's commitment to view the built environment as a whole, as a, um, to not isolate individual buildings as though they're paintings in a museum, but see the whole urban fabric. He talks about the, quote, quality of place and the, quote, fragile parts that make up the built environment. Um, How could you describe Dylan's vision of the unity of the built environment? Um, And uh, and how does that continue to shape your work at at the Dylan Center? I think that's a really good question because we do have a tendency to think about an architecture critic writing about buildings, right? So kind of giving as an equivalent to a movie reviewer, giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down to a building. Part of what he did. Um, I think that if that's all he had done, I'm not sure the work would be significant for, for a terribly long time. I actually think it's his work writing about issues about um, urban development. It's his work writing about um, issues of civic identity, um, issues of, of policies about how the city should grow and develop. That's the stuff that really places the more purely architectural writing in a, in a really interesting context. Um, I think that that idea of the force for the trees, 
Um, I think some of the best things that he did were look at the small projects that could make a big difference. And I think one really good example of that is the essay that he wrote about the Park Pavilion project um, that was spearheaded by um, Willis Winters, who was um, director of the Dallas Park Department. And this is a project that, if you look at it, are very small little shade structures um, in parks. But on the other hand, they were distributed throughout the city um, in all kinds of different neighborhoods and different kinds of environments. And Dylan very much believed that these small projects um, that had contact with a lot of people in an everyday scale were the things that actually transformed um, the way that people lived their daily lives. And it was one of the most significant impacts that architects could have on the public. Um, I think for me, that's one of the things um, that, that Dylan identified in his writing that's important to me um, as a historian kind of moving forward and thinking about how to train my students and how to connect them with the best kind of possible practice that they create as they become architects. It's how to think about these small impacts and the big meanings that they have for people in their everyday lives. Well, and someone who embodied that was Jane Jacobs, the great 20th century critic who paid a visit to Dallas in 1993 and Dylan interviewed her. In your introduction uh, to that piece, you mentioned that Jacobs' assessment of Dallas is, quote, at once apt and completely off base. So I had to ask you about that. What did Jane Jacobs get right and what did she get wrong about Dallas? So I think that this is a part of a, of a big thing. I mean, Dallas is not the only city that does this, but a lot of cities, they bring in um, consultants from the outside to come in and help them kind of assess and think about what, what's going on. Um, and Dallas has a, a long history of inviting very well-known commentators to come in and, and explain the place that they live in to themselves. Um, and, and that's why Jacob was, was in town. Um, and, you know, I think that what I um, see in Jacob's work, and especially my students read Jacob's work, is we, we think of her as the, the person in the death and life of great American cities who's a great neighborhood advocate and that eyes on the street phrase that really emphasizes um, the social fabric um, that's created in, in tight-knit historic neighborhoods. Um, but what she was commenting on in Dallas was really the downtown, which has very little in common with, with Greenwich Village um, and, and the image that we have of Jacobs as, as this neighborhood advocate. And the way that, that she focused on free markets, um, small business, and, and she focused on the idea of Asian immigrants completely reinventing downtown through a series of, of public markets um, and, and focused on the idea that, that it was a free market that would actually reinvigorate Dallas's downtown was, was a, a misread of the way that the free market really works in Dallas. Um, and so while some of the, the things that she was talking out about by that point in her career had really more of a libertarian bent that, that focused on getting kind of government policy out of the way and letting economics and the market work. Um, that's kind of what was happening in Dallas. It's just that it was the real estate market <laughs> that was really driving the way that downtown was, was developing. Another theme, I believe, from Jacob's work is the role of freeways. And critics, including Dylan, have noted the role that freeways played often in gutting downtown neighborhoods, uh, particularly, as Dylan notes, through neighborhoods uh, that historically have been uh, lived in by ethnic minorities. There is one column included in this collection, though, that I consider sort of an ode to freeways in Dallas, um, uh, appreciating the, um, even aesthetically, uh, freeways 
freeways in Dallas. Uh, could you explain what David Dillon found positive about highways and uh, how enthusiastic are you and other Dallas citizens uh, when it comes to his assessment? So that essay, um, he wrote more than one version of. So that there are, throughout his kind of 25 years, there was more than one essay about the freeways and their potential. And he wrote another really good piece that didn't make it into the book about the redesign of Central Expressway and the potential that that redesign had, because so many people spent so much time on that on that freeway, um, to, to really do a benefit to people. Um, I think in, in writing about um, highways and freeways and interstates, um, he was really tapping into something that is completely fundamental to Dallas-Fort Worth. You just cannot really get around without a car, very practically. And so we have to. And I think rather than coming at it from a Jane Jacobs perspective, I would say he was actually uh, coming at it from a little more, more of a Rainer Bannum perspective. So Rainer Bannum loves Los Angeles, starts off with him getting into a car and saying the only way you can see L.A. is from the freeway. Um I think that's the spirit that, that Dylan is bringing to Dallas-Fort Worth, which is that this is a town that really didn't exist until the car did. And everything about it was scaled and built from the car. It's just a kind of reality. Um, I, I spoke to a few friends of his that said, you know what? If he were still driving around Dallas today, I think he would write another essay about how much he hates freeways. <laughs> 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 so I think that there is a kind of poetic license um, to the idea of um, – American freedom and its symbolism in the car, this kind of on-the-road Jack Kerouac sensibility that's part of the American mythology of the highway um, and the car that flows through that. But on the other hand, this is a huge, sprawling metropolis. And to see all of the things that he wrote about, you've got to have a car. So some kind of built-in appreciation for that is, is almost a prerequisite for the job of writing about Dallas Fort Worth. And again, he found some grandeur and some aesthetic value in the freeways. And no other column in the piece uh, in the collection convinced me, um, even though I'm a Midwesterner and so I'm, I'm, um, I don't have a firsthand perspective on this, but I, no other piece had the effect on me that that piece did in the book. And I, your point is well taken that you have to start not in New York, but in Los Angeles in order to have the right vantage point. And uh, perhaps uh, only a Dallas-based architecture critic uh, could make such an appreciation, um, however limited we might say it was or however, however much he might have changed by now. Um, perhaps it took his vantage point to to see what he saw. I think that's that's partially true. I mean, he grew up in, in New England um, in Boston, and so he wasn't a, a native Texan. Um, I, I think to, to get by here for a long time, you, you have to adapt at least a little bit. Um but I also think that, you know, that there are other essays that kind of balance it out, right? As much as there's this romance of the highway, there is a recognition that, that this sprawling um, metropolis has, has issues, right? Um, and so that it's something that may provide an image of freedom can also provide an image of isolation, right? And that we have all these separate enclaves um, that we live apart from each other in. Um, and that makes it difficult to develop a, a more cohesive um, civic identity. Well, speaking of cohesive, I, I find it to be sort of a recurring theme throughout this collection. In addition to 
um, the wide scope that Dylan takes, even geographically, across the metropolitan area and across the state, he does talk a lot about downtown and what a transformation downtown in so many cities, including Dallas, has made in the time when he started writing about architecture in the built environment in 1980 until the end of his career and up till now, um, from what was in the early 80s seen and experienced as a rather barren uh, environment that didn't have much nightlife, didn't have much residential life. All of that has changed dramatically. Um, What did and what would Dylan consider the the best and and worst aspects of the transformation of downtown over the course of his career? I I think this is one of my favorite subjects um, to, to read that he wrote about because he was chronicling this incredibly important period in the history of American planning and architecture when there is this kind of return to downtown after the post-war emptying out of downtowns in the 50s through the 70s. And the question about the 80s is how do we bring people back? And so he's writing right in the middle of all of these kind of discussions and experiments and what to do. Um, one of my favorite pieces in the book is, is the essay called Quick Fix Syndrome, um, in which he's talking about the strategies that, that urban planners um, and consultants have really come up with as, as these quick fixes for uh, a ghost town in a downtown. Um, and he, he doesn't like any of them. <laughs> um, it's things like festivals, um, convention centers, um, sports arenas, like big, big gestures um, that are supposed to suddenly transform a whole downtown through this um, grand intervention. He didn't find any of those working. Um, and I think a lot of cities have found that to be correct. Those aren't the things that really fix your downtown. The things that he focused on as being the kind of right fixes for downtown um, were bringing people to live there, um, making walkable streets, um, having um, restaurants, shops, right? Kind of the things that make for everyday social life. Um, those are the kinds of things that, that cities actually were a little bit slower to bring in and that Dallas has done a better job of gradually bringing into their downtown. Um, Fort Worth's approach was very different than Dallas's um, from the beginning. And it had a a very different um, way of approaching reinvestment in its downtown that's also unfolded slowly over time and that focused from the beginning on things like movie theaters and and restaurants um, and apartment living downtown. Um, And so the way that those two case studies have unfolded over the past, say, 40 years or so is a really interesting moment that his writing chronicles. And that's part of the value, I think, of this collection, to see the scope and to realize that no particular building, no particular mayor or investor or no particular even uh, master plan can uh, capture the scope of the challenges and the solutions um, that, that that he's writing about. I, we've been talking about the subject of this book. I, I want to pause and ask about David Dillon as a writer, because you point out that he wasn't just a critic. He wasn't just an expert. He was a writer. He was a craftsman of prose, and his prose is, I would say, punchy and powerful. Um, I would even venture to say that he models something we need in our current climate, which is he is unsparing, takes no prisoners, um, plays no favorites, but at the same time exhibits no mean-spiritedness. It's never about personal animosity. It's about uh, everything Everything he has to say, even however critical it might be, comes out of a uh, palpable concern for the subject um, and, and the merits of the case that he's discussing. Um, 
could you talk about the, just David Dillon as a writer and uh, the, the personality, since as we said, you didn't meet him personally, the personality that comes through through the, uh, through the quality of the prose? So this is a really good observation, and it's one of the reasons that I like for my students uh, to kind of practice their own writing um, and trying to take on some of the voice um, that they see in, in Dylan's writing, because it is kind of this equitable way um, of writing about things that even when, when he doesn't like them. Um, I think you're right that he's not sparing, but he's also not gratuitous um, in the way that, that he writes. Um, you know, there, there are a few building reviews in the book. Um, and some of them are good, and some of them are not so great. Um, he didn't like the Crescent, a development in downtown Dallas, and he had a lot of pretty choice words for it. Um, but he's able to toss in a few positives um, at the same time um, and doesn't really just dig into the things that, that he doesn't like. Um, I think that part of that comes from the fact that he didn't start off as an architecture critic. He started off teaching writing, and so he was always a writer first. And there's a really wonderful passage in a book that he wrote and um, that was actually a textbook for teaching creative writing. Um, and he talks about how to create a setting. Um, and in that passage, talking to students about how to create a setting, it, to me, it really read like the kind of nucleus of what drove him as an architecture critic, because he talked about Mark Twain writing about the Mississippi River. Um, and he talked about um, the way that John Updike described setting. Um, and he's taking this sense of, a very humanistic desire to understand the place that we are as the driving factor for the way that he writes about cities and the way that he writes about architecture. Um, and so thinking about the city that we live in is really the setting for the story of our lives is what underpins most of the work that I see him doing as a critic and as a writer. For many readers of this collection, perhaps the one thing they associate with Dallas in terms of place and landmarks is Dealey Plaza in the sixth floor depository building, the site of the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. Refreshingly, this collection hardly focuses at all on that. But there are a couple of times um, there's a column on, a, on an elevator that is, uh, was added to the sixth floor depository building for tourists um, and a column also about the JFK Memorial nearby. Um, and what's so fascinating is that the city, as Dylan says, is wrestling with at first kind of the shame of having this horror occur there, uh, but then a sense of obligation to the memory and to all the tourists um, who, who want to to uh, to experience and to connect with with this event. Let me ask you about the JFK Memorial, because what the way it came up was a, uh, a column in Slate that said it's terrible, it's plain, it doesn't honor President Kennedy. And I was fascinated by how Dylan said, first of all, there's more architectural purpose there than you think. Um, and second, don't try to overfix. Don't try to overfiddle and make it just right. Less is more in its original design and less is more in uh, a quote-unquote fix. Uh, can you talk about the power of restraint that Dylan saw uh, when it comes to design and, in this case, redesign? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one. The, the, the JFK um, Memorial is a very simple kind of open box, um, more of a cenotaph than I think what people expect um, if they're, say, a visitor from out of town and they're going to visit a memorial to the assassinated uh, President uh, Kennedy. Um, and, and so I, I think sometimes that surprise of saying, is this it, um, is, a, is a part of, of what creates some of that confusion. Um, and, and it gets to the heart of, like, who's the, who's the audience? 
for this memorial. Because I think that, that architects and designers respond to its uh, simplicity, but the general public leaves a little confused a lot of the time. And I, I find the, the difference in those two responses to be really, really interesting. And it, I thought that Dylan's um, defense of the memorial was really important. Um, as a historian, I actually see it a little bit differently. Um, the, the memorial is coming up on um, its 50th anniversary next year. And, and so at this point, the kind of controversy over the memorial, how difficult it was for the city to build it, is actually now a part of the city's history. Um, and, you know, regardless of whether you like that memorial or not, it's important as it is um, and important to, to keep it there and to keep the conversation going about the, the best way to memorialize um, a, president, a president who lost his life in Dallas. Um, and, and I think also just the creation of the Sixth Floor Museum itself the um, short article that, that's included in the book about the, the controversy surrounding the building of that external elevator that would provide direct access to the sixth floor where the sixth floor museum is located. Um, a museum that's dedicated to um, commemorating the life of President Kennedy, but also exploring the context in the 60s um, that led to the assassination and then the, the res national response to it. Um, just the controversy over building an external elevator in a historic district or even creating the museum at all, um, that article provides direct insight into the moment that that conversation was happening. And it was a difficult conversation um, and, and one that the city didn't want to have in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the memorial that Philip Johnson designed reflects that ambivalence um, that the city has had about how to memorialize, whether to memorialize and where to memorialize President Kennedy in, in the city um, in which he died. Um, anyone who's interested in that, I'm also going to um, put a shout out, out to a book that really delves into the, those issues called Assassination and Commemoration um, that's by Stephen Fagan, who's a curator at the Sixth Form Museum. Anyone who's interested in those um, really difficult conversations can find more to pick up on there. And you, it, the column is brief, but it gives you an appreciation of how the first task is simply to keep track of all the constituents and all the uh, the points that are being advocated because it becomes this tangle, as we saw at the site of 9-11 in New York City. Um, it just has so many layers of complexity. Uh, but to, to close the loop and clarify on the John F. Kennedy Memorial, would you advocate for even more restraint than Dylan did? Would you say it itself is a historic site, so uh, fiddle with it even less than, than Dylan? suggested i actually would i, I think that it, it is now as historic in its own way um as as the rest of the buildings and sites that are contained within the actual historic district that's directly adjacent um to the memorial and the historic district includes daily closet it includes the school book depository um and the memorial itself becomes a part of the conversation in dallas about what to do with the physical spaces associated with the assassination. And it's an incredibly interesting story that I think um, there's a lot more interesting storytelling to be done about that. All right. So after beginning his career uh, as an architecture critic with the Dallas Morning News in 1980, David Dillon accepted a buyout in the year 2008 and gave an address shortly afterwards that was published in Texas Architect in 2009, and it's included in the collection here. And so it serves as sort of a coda, a sort of a big picture uh, on his career and on the state of architecture criticism as a whole. At that time, 11 years ago now as we speak, uh, newspapers were in dire straits. Uh, they were uh, cutting critics 
uh, all kinds of critics, in particular architectural critics. Um, what did Dylan see as the biggest dangers at that time, and uh, how might he have commented on the even more precipitous decline of newspapers that has accelerated um, since he yeah. gave that talk? So the, the issues he saw really were that um, when you say uh, the phrase architecture critic, um, and I think as I mentioned earlier, that sounds like someone who's giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down to a building, but it actually encompasses a lot more. Um, a good architecture critic is talking about planning. Um, a good architecture critic is talking about neighborhoods. A good architecture critic is talking about the places in a city that matter, um, which often comes up in conversations about historic preservation. Um and a good architecture critic is, is really helping amplify the voices of advocates um, for nonprofits, advocates for neighborhoods. Um, and so when you lose that kind of voice that's inherently multidisciplinary, that's spanning every discipline from real estate to art and everything in between, um, then, then you're really losing a fundamental voice that, that should be a part of every local newsroom. Right, someone who deals with planning and design um, and, and neighborhoods, not just from the covering the neighborhood meeting, but to actually thinking about how this relates to, to bigger issues that, that are going on in, in cities and in, in states across the country. Um, he advocated in that 2008 piece for the idea that, that perhaps um, the Internet <laughs> would provide a, a kind of outlet for um, local groups like the um, – like the AIA uh, or local advocacy groups kind of fill in the gaps and print their own uh, new kinds of approaches. But the, the real issue was um, that as time went by, it became clear that the platform that's provided by official publications carries more weight than, than the distribution of all of those blogs and websites across the internet. Um, I think he would be... Um, particularly pleased that the Dallas Morning News does still have an architecture critic today um, and that it's been important um, to reinvigorate and kind of reposition what it means to be an architecture critic um, as the media continues to, to shift and change. Just to underscore your point about the potential impact, uh, and Dylan's point about the potential impact, in fact, you quote in the introduction Paul Goldberger, the eminent critic for the New York Times, who gave this lavish praise, he said, quote, to say that Dallas is a better city because of his voice, speaking of Dylan, is to speak the obvious. If the phrase conscience of a city is a bit of a cliche, I can't think of an alternative that describes David's role in Dallas any better, end quote. Uh, very high praise, not something that Dylan aspired to or would have wanted in terms of power for its own sake, but speaks to the impact that architecture criticism can have, and in Dylan's case, did have. Uh, to return now, finally, to uh, to your work, carrying on David Dillon's legacy, um, you told us about the work of the center. Uh, what's next? What are what are some of your biggest ambitions for the work of the David Dillon Center in the coming years? So that's a great question, because I'm not an architecture critic. I'm, I'm an architectural historian. And so in a lot of ways, the work I do is very fundamentally different um, than the work that David Dillon did. Um, and I actually think that's a good thing. Um, that an academic and a historian can, can draw some inspiration from the very public spirited nature of the work that um, Dylan did and try to incorporate that into the way that I teach students to care about places um, and to care especially about storytelling. Um, 
And while storytelling may, may seem slightly uh, distant skill for an architect, uh, I, th- I think some of our best architecture comes when, when people can listen to stories as well as think very carefully about how buildings and designs can, can create new stories um, for neighborhoods and, and the people who live in them. I think some of the, the future projects that I'm working on um, with students and in collaboration with a few other people have to do um, with looking at neglected places in the Dallas-Fort Worth landscape and also trying to look at how some of the issues that Dylan identifies in the 70s and the 80s, um, getting into them from a more of a historic angle. Um, so trying to understand some of the planning processes that led to the demolition of, of some of our African-Americans, uh, looking especially at the ways that urban renewal policies privilege the creation of some pretty wonderful places like the water gardens in Fort Worth, but that also meant that we lost huge historic neighborhoods at the same time. But getting much deeper into the mechanisms um, of how that process really worked in cities like Dallas and Fort Worth, that were very young at that time and so very different than some of the examples of urban renewal that we see in other cities like, say, New York or, or Detroit. Well, Catherine Holliday, the book is The Open-Ended City, David Dillon on Texas Architecture. Uh, it's a wonderful collection. I, I appreciated the chance to be introduced with a writer whose work I was not familiar with and with the work of the Dillon Center, uh, which I also was not familiar with before this. Uh, so thank you for the book and for your work, and thanks for your time today. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the conversation. Catherine Holliday is the editor of The Open-Ended City, David Dillon on Texas Architecture published this year by University of Texas Press in a series furnished by the Roger Fullington Endowment in Architecture. Holiday teaches architecture at the University of Texas at Arlington, where she is also the founding director of the David Dillon Center for Texas Architecture. She is the author of Leopold Eidlitz, Architecture and Idealism in the Gilded Age, and Ralph Walker, Architect of the Century. David Dillon was the nationally acclaimed architecture critic of the Dallas Morning News, where his work received awards from the Associated Press, the Dallas Press Club, and the Texas Society of Architects. I'm Nathan Birma. You've been listening to New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.